You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Well, good morning, family. Good to see you. You can start making your way back to your seats now, you extra friendly people. Good to see you. My name's Jeff, one of the pastors here. If it's your first time with us, thank you for joining us for worship today. Uh, Before we go to God's word, let's pray. Uh, It has been a tumultuous week in God's world. And so let's go to him in prayer, and then we'll go to his word today. Would you join me? Let's pray. Our Father, you are the only refuge we have in times of trouble. And Lord, as we read and and see about so many horrific acts of violence and terror, um, God, we're grieved, we're outraged. God, we mourn with all of these families who have endured such unspeakable loss. And God, we think of all of our faith family, our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in this region, God, in Gaza and Palestine and Israel and the surrounding area. And uh, Good Shepherd, would you watch over your flock there right now? And we think of the countless people who are displaced right now or in harm's way, and we ask that you would protect the innocent and the vulnerable. We ask you to judge and restrain evil, to establish your order and your justice, and to, to bring this to a resolution, God, that we cannot see. And God, above all, I pray that that this crisis, as any, would turn our eyes to you, Jesus, because you are the Prince of Peace, and it would would this cause the nations to despair of our ability to make peace and to realize only you can. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even when we are shaken, God, ultimately, we are founded on you. You are our firm foundation. Teach us now from your word, and we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. So today's passage is about fear. Fear. To fear or not to fear? That's the question I want us to consider today because fear is complicated, isn't it? Now, all emotions are complicated. You know that if you've watched Inside Out. They're all very complicated. But fear is particularly perplexing. Because when you hear the word, I think our instinctual reaction is fear is bad. Fear is a negative emotion. I don't like being afraid. And too much fear or anxiety is bad. It's bad for your heart, bad for your lungs, bad for your immune system. It's just bad for you to be afraid all the time. So fear is bad, and yet fear is incredibly useful because it keeps you alive. It's not crazy to be fearful. In fact, if you're not a little bit fearful, you're probably a little bit crazy. So so let me give you an example. Like Alex Honnold is one of the greatest climbers in the world, and he free solos, which means he climbs without a rope all the time. And neuroscientists are fascinated by this because I don't know about you, I would not do that. In fact, I'd be terrified, and yet he can stay remarkably calm. And so they've done all these scans on his brain to figure out how he can do this. And here's what's interesting. They found he has a fear center in his brain. He has the amygdala. It just doesn't activate like yours does. It gets threats, and it just doesn't respond. Now, that could be genetic, but part of it is that he's just trained himself to stay calm. 
which is crazy. He said, I used to be really scared and then I just did this a thousand times and now I'm not scared as much. And that's amazing and I'm not gonna try that. Because here's the thing, that preternatural ability to stay calm is gonna kill him, right? That's crazy. I don't wanna become the best car dodger in the world, okay? Like I just, I go on freeways and I just have a preternatural ability to stay calm and miss cars. Like that's not, I'm not gonna live that way, right? No, fear serves a very useful purpose. It keeps your family alive and thriving. And so we don't like being afraid. We need some level of fear. And now here's what makes things even more complicated. We're fascinated by fear. Some of you are adrenaline junkies. Fear makes you feel alive. You want to confront fear for that reason. And we're drawn to things that scare us. I mean, there could not be a genre called horror movies if people at some level didn't like the feeling of being thrilled or terrified. It's complicated, isn't it? Now we go to the Bible. Well, what the Bible says is complicated. Apostle John, perfect love casts out fear and the one who fears has not been perfected in love. Gosh, sounds like fear is a bad thing. But then Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Ah, so this is a mess. What do we do with fear? That's today's question, and what I hope you'll see, it's really not about getting rid of fear, it's what you do with the fear you have. It's what today's passage teaches. We're in this series on Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is an Old Testament book. It is Moses' last sermon to Israel. God has taken his people out of slavery through the wilderness, 40 years, led them, and now Israel is on the brink of the promised land, and Moses is about to die. And before he dies, Moses makes one last appeal to God's people. And he says, Israel, please remain faithful to the God who has been faithful to you. Keep the covenant. Obey God. How will Israel do this? Remembering. Remembering who God is, what he has done, why they should stay faithful. So Deuteronomy is all about what Israel must keep in mind, what we must keep in mind to stay faithful to God. And today we're looking at what we need to remember about God when we are afraid. Israel was afraid. In fact, Israel is very afraid as they're standing on the shores of the Jordan about to enter the promised land. Why are they afraid? Moses tells us, Deuteronomy 7, verse 17. If you say in these, your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? Israel has this rumbling concern in their heart. They know what's coming in the promised land. And you know what's coming? Seven nations, bigger than them, stronger than them, with advanced weaponry that want to destroy them. Oh, and they're giants. In a sense, this is the test for Israel. Will they trust God enough to go into the land and take it, or will they run? This is not the first time Israel's had this test. Remember 40 years before this? God takes Israel out of Egypt, brings them to the brink of the promised land. They're in the exact same place and they're about to enter and God says, go for it. And so Israel sends 12 spies. That's Numbers 13. You remember two of the spies come back, Joshua and Caleb, and they say, guys, this place is great. The promised land's wonderful. By all means, we should go and take it. But 10 of the spies come back with the bad report. And here's what they say. 
the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them, we're gonna die. We're all gonna die. And Israel believes the bad report over the good report. In fact, Numbers 14, everyone starts to wail and weep. And they say, God brought us here to kill us. We don't want the promised land. We want to be slaves in Egypt. We should go back. God says, okay, if that's what you want, you're not going in. 40 years laps around the Sinai Peninsula. They won't take the land. And during that 40-year period, God is training his people. He's preparing them. He's teaching them to trust him for their protection and provision, all to get them back to where? The exact same place to face the exact same test. The giants are still there. They've had 40 more years to prepare for them. Will they fight the giants or will they flee? Same thing. Now, before we chide the Israelites and just say, you know, why can't they just trust God like we do, And right? Think about what they are called to do. They have to wage war on nations that are bigger, stronger, more technologically advanced. And we don't have time to get into all of the issues of Israel's holy wars and the ethical considerations and dilemmas. But it's important to understand how weird and crazy this battle is. Israel's holy wars are unlike any holy wars in the ancient world. And here's why. All the nations had gods. And they all thought their gods were for them in war. But the reason they thought they were for them is because the strong would go to conquer the weak. That's how it worked. We're the biggest, baddest nation. Clearly, the gods must want us to take over these weak, inferior nations because the gods are on our side. But in Israel's case, are they the strongest nation? No, they're barely a nation. They're a group of refugee ex-slaves who have been wandering in the desert in the same clothes for 40 years. They are harassed. They are helpless. God says in Ezekiel 16 that when he found them, they were like a bloodied, abandoned baby. And he took them and they are malnourished. They're fatigued. They have no advanced weaponry. And God says, go pick a fight with the giants. That's like asking the Dallas Cowboys to go up against the Niners on Sunday night football, right? That's crazy, right? Oh, it's not too soon. No, you can come at me, Cowboys fans. I don't care, all right? There's no hope right? And, and yet, <laughs> don't email me, all right? <laughs> we'll talk after this. It's fine. And, and yet, God has prepared Israel for this exact moment. They have to face this fear. That's very instructive, isn't it? Because what that tells me is that God will probably not remove the fears I already have. He's going to make me face them. Why? Because it's the only way I learn to trust him. It's the only way. So whatever the giant is in your life, whatever you're avoiding, chances are God's not just going to remove it. Chances are you're probably going to have to face it because only by facing it is your faith and confidence in God going to grow. So when you have that fear, when you are afraid, what do you need to remember about God? Three things for Israel, three things for us. First, let's look at why we don't need to fear. Why we don't need to fear. Next, we'll look at what we should rightly fear. And finally, who we should ultimately fear. The only thing that can drive out fear is a greater, better fear. That's it. 
But, but I hope you'll see today not just the bad news about fear, but there's actually very good news about fear as well. And, and hopefully you'll see that before we're done. So when we're afraid, what do we need to remember? First thing Moses says is why we don't need to be afraid. Why don't we need to be afraid? Because God puts his people in impossible situations to show that God's gonna do all the fighting. That's why. God fights the battle. What does Moses say? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what? What the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you, little by little. You may not make an end of them all at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you, but the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. What is Moses saying? He's saying, Israel, there's a lesson God was teaching you during the Exodus, and you needed to learn it. What was the lesson of Exodus? That God fights for his people. Israel's slaves, what does God do? God sends plagues, and then more plagues, and then more plagues, until finally Pharaoh relents, lets the people go. The people flee towards the Red Sea. Pharaoh changes his mind, hardens his heart, says, I will not let them go. Pharaoh chases after the armies, or the armies of uh, Egypt chase after Israel, and then what happens? The people of Israel are pinned between the sea and the armies. Now, have you ever thought, why would God take them out there to put them in that spot? Why would he do that? Because as one person has said, God loves to tie one hand behind his back to show that the battle belongs to who? To God. That that God will put his people in situations where they cannot fight to show that he will fight. And he will deliver. Remember what Moses says to the people as they're all panicking, saying we're about to get killed? What does he say? Exodus 14. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. God did the fighting. Israel did the resting. They just needed to stop panicking, stop complaining, and rest in what God was going to do to deliver. God loves to do this. God loves to put his people in situations where it shows that he has all the power over the powers of the world. That's what God does. That's the point of Psalm 46 when it says, be still and know that I am God. It's not talking about what we do in our closet during a quiet time. The, The passage is about war and the nations raging and God defeating the nations. Be still and know that God fights. And we can trust in that. God, this is impossible. Of course it is. God has to do the fighting. Well, we patiently wait. And look what Moses says. What God did for you in the Exodus, he will continue to do again and again, little by little, over time, sending hornets, throwing people into confusion, clearing them away. God will drive them out. In fact, that's the dominant image of the conquest throughout the Old Testament. It's God driving out the people 
to prepare the land for Israel. So why don't we fear giants? Because they're ultimately not our giants to fight, they're God's giants to fight. And, and God is going to fight the battle. Now, does that mean Israel never lifted a finger? No, they had to trust, they had to fight. But have you ever thought about how unconventional Israel's warfare is? God tells them to do the, the craziest stuff, doesn't he? Joshua you know, 7, Jericho, this is an impenetrable fortress. You know the best way to bring it down? Walk around it seven times and shout. Just do that, right? Gideon, oh man, we've got all these Midianites, right? Hundreds of thousands, we don't, you know, how many, how are we gonna do this? And God's like, you don't need 20,000, you don't need 10,000, you need 300. And then you need to surround them and then do the shouting thing again. And it's like, well, no, no, and then it works, Right? When, to defeat Goliath, it's like, all right, you don't need armor. You don't need the, the best guy. We're going to pick the, the last kid from the least tribe, the most unlikely. Don't put any armor on. Here's a slingshot. Now, why does God do this again and again and again and again? Because the battle belongs to the Lord. And God gives his people methods that they would never think of so that we would say Psalm 27. Psalm 27 is what? Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in what? In the name of the Lord, our God. See, the, re the reason Israel didn't have to fear isn't because there was nothing to fear. There was tons to fear. They were outmanned. They were outgunned. It's just that God said, this is my battle to fight. Just cooperate with me. And that's important for us. When we hear the command in scripture, fear not, fear not. It's not a rebuke, like stop being so anxious. Stop being so fearful. It's saying there's good news. Fear not. God's on your side. He's gonna fight the battle. It's an encouragement. Now, now what does any of this have to do with us? Okay, well, the church is in Israel. Uh, we don't have a land that was God's land. We don't have nations we wage war against. We are the nations. We still have a battle. It's just not a battle against flesh and blood. It's a battle against Satan and spiritual forces, Ephesians 6. So there's still a battle but here's the thing, we're still powerless in the battle apart from God. We have a spiritual enemy who inspires evil and wickedness in the world. We are helpless. And what does God give us the most unconventional means to fight this battle? Prayer, preaching the gospel, personal holiness, deeds of justice and mercy, loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us forgiving people, being merciful, serving the vulnerable, identifying with the lowly. That's a bad way to win a war, isn't it? And God says, those are the means I give you. Why? Because the battle belongs to who? The Lord. The Lord. God gives us a strategy that seems impossible to advance his kingdom to showcase his glory and power. So we don't need to worry ultimately because it's not about our might or our power. The battle belongs to the Lord. And here's how that changes your anxieties. I remember Kyle Driggers preached this once, and I'm just gonna steal it because it was so good. It's not that your anxieties are too small to worry about. It's that they're too big to worry about. You can't, you can't do anything about them. Only God can. And that's liberating when you realize it. And, and part of the problem living in our society is that we are flooded every day with problems that we can't possibly solve, right? 
So I can, I can pick up my phone. Oh man, rising crime in our area. Okay, what do I do about that? Oh man, this Israeli-Palestinian conflict. What am I gonna do about that? Oh, there's a climate crisis. What am I gonna do about that? Oh, the Niners depth chart. What am I gonna do about that, right? And, and you, you just get flooded with all of these problems and, and what you can do about them in the span of the world. I mean, I can't even solve the problems in my own life. Like, I'm trying to live on a budget, much less manage all of these problems, we are not built to manage all of the world's problems. And it's not because we're fallen, it's because we're finite. We're limited. We are limited. And, and, and so whatever that thing is that I am so anxious, I have to ask, what does God actually call me to do in response to this? And then what's just his battle to fight? So for me, the giant in my life was just the approval of people. And I would stress and agonize and be so anxious about how do I get people to like me and win people over and win be able to influence me until finally I realized it is impossible to get people to like you. It's impossible. In fact, whatever you do, some people will like it. Some people won't like it. And that was the most liberating thing of all is to realize only God can give me favor with people and the kind of favor that matters and, and, and the only way to get liberated from it is to say, it's not that it's too small to worry about, it's just too big. It's too complicated. Does that make sense? So, so when you're anxious, the first thing to ask is just, is this too big to worry about? <laughs> this is above my pay grade. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean that you don't do anything. In fact, that view of God makes action possible. And here's why. If it all depends on you to be the general manager of the universe and fix everything, do you know what that creates? Paralysis. Because you won't do anything. But when you believe in a God who's big enough to do stuff and use really crazy methods to do it, then it's like, okay, I trust, so I'm gonna do a little thing. Do what I can right here and trust that he'll use it. Does that make sense? All right, that's point one. That's why we don't need to fear. God fights the battle. What do we need to rightly fear? Because there are real threats. What is the real threat for us? God makes clear what the real threat is for Israel. He tells them in very graphic language at the end. He says, I'm gonna drive out the peoples. I'm gonna fight that battle. Here's the focus of your battle, Israel. The carved images of their gods, you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it for it is devoted to destruction. God says, as I prepare the land little by little, every idol, every physical representation of a false God, burn it, abhor it. What's the point? Destroy every idol or the idols will destroy you. This was the danger for Israel. Israel, like all of us, is prone to make false gods, to trust in false gods, to worship false gods. That is the enemy. That is the target. See, it's so interesting. You know, another way Israel's holy wars were unique, um, Israel doesn't have propaganda. You ever realize that? Like, like most nations, when they conquer other nations or colonize, it's like, trust me, this is good for you. You want the peace of Rome. We're gonna conquer you. It's gonna be better for you. But when God fights on behalf of his people, he says, look, I didn't choose you because you were great. That was Deuteronomy 7. In fact, you're tiny. You're not an impressive nation. 
Deuteronomy 8, I didn't choose you because your ability to make wealth or be prosperous. In fact, I gave you that. Deuteronomy 9, I didn't choose you because of your righteousness. In fact, you're just as wicked as the other nations. Now, if you were gonna write propaganda for your nation, that's really bad propaganda, isn't it? Israel knew how susceptible they were to the exact wickedness of the peoples they were called to conquer. And they knew that this was the great danger. God did, and so he says, this is the thing you have to be absolutely merciless about is rooting out idols. And if you look at Israel's history, what was the thing that brought them down time after time? It was not external threats. It was not empires. It was their worship of false gods that made them internally weak and compromised and vulnerable. And that gave the empires of the world the power to come in and overtake them. You you see the same thing in the early church, right? The, The little church in Acts, no way it should hang on. The entire political establishment is after it. They're fine. They thrive in the midst of opposition. What's the most dangerous thing? The lie of Ananias and Sapphira. It's the deception creeping in, which is why God kills them, right? That's Old Testament stuff. No, same God still cares about holiness because it's that internal threat. See, there's a threat that we need to be rightly afraid of. We just need to identify the right threat. Christians can get all freaked out about the world, how crazy the world is and how crazy the culture is. Culture's always been crazy. World's always been crazy. The world's gonna world, okay? That's what it does. The church is what God cares about purifying. And if the church is purified, the church will be effective. And it always has. And if the church succumbs to idolatry, it will be ineffective no matter how hospitable the culture is to the church, period. The things we think are threats, let me give you an example, okay? It's a dumb one, but it's, it might be helpful, right? Like, I remember on my honeymoon, I was swimming, and, and I saw some sharks below me. But they were leopard sharks, right? They're not really, they could nibble you to death, right? They're not, uh, they're not that dangerous. And, and so I'm swimming, and I'm like, what if I got eaten by a shark on my honeymoon? That would, that'd be crazy. And then I look off in the distance, and there's lightning, And I'm like, there's a lightning storm coming in. What if I get hit by lightning on my honeymoon? Or what if I get eaten by a shark while I'm getting hit by lightning? I mean, that'd be really sad to die on your honeymoon, but that's that's how you want to go out, right? I mean, that's amazing. And, And you think lightning storms are terrifying. Sharks are terrifying. Your odds of either of those things happening, that's infinitesimally low. Like 10 people a year get eaten by sharks, okay? And you have shark week, right? You know what you should have? Mosquito week. Because that's the thing that will kill you. Seriously. It will. It is the tiniest thing, but that thing kills 50,000 times more people a year than sharks. And that's the spiritual danger for God's people. You see all these giants, all of this opposition, and God says it's the idols that you harbor in your heart are your destruction. Why? Because you're playing for the wrong team. And whatever that functional God is, you will give yourself to it, you will worship it, you will serve it, and it will give you destruction and death in return because that's what idols give. And so it's not that we should just have no fear, it's we need to have an appropriate fear of the right thing, and it's idolatry right here. And so for me, part of my deal with people-pleasing was I had to realize You know, it's kind of like what Winston Churchill said. We have nothing to fear except fear itself. We have nothing to fear except idolizing the things we fear. (laughs) That's the thing to appropriately fear. 
I realized the reason that I was so scared of people is because I had made them my functional God. And so I had to start asking myself hard questions about what was driving my behavior. Why will I compromise the way I talk in front of some people? What, what, what is that? Am I just afraid of how they're going to react? Why do I avoid making hard phone calls till the end of the day? Because I just want to, you know, I'll just check my email again, you know, even though there's nothing new to check, right? Just avoid the hard task. Why do I hate saying no to people? Ultimately, it's because I feared them and realized this is going to destroy my life because it's going to put me in situations where I compromise my convictions before God. I just please people all the time. I have no standards. And so I had to learn to be afraid of doing that rather than afraid of people. Does that make sense? So, that all leads us, why we don't need to fear, what we should rightly fear is who to fear. And ultimately, the only solution to our fears is having a right fear of who? God. The only way to fight fear is with fear. We were created with fear. It's just fearing the right person and God is who we should fear. What does Moses say? You shall not be in dread of them for the Lord your God is in your midst a great, awesome God. God is terrifying. God is awesome. God is who we should fear. But it's very important that we understand what it means to fear God. Here's the thing. If you are an enemy of God, you should be afraid of God. The demons know they're enemies of God. And what does James say? They shudder. Do the demons trust God? No. They're God's enemies and they have a fear of God. That's being afraid of God. What does it mean to have a reverential fear of God? Because here's the interesting thing about the fear of God. There is a kind of fear the Bible describes, a fear of God that isn't the kind of, I'm afraid of God, so I'm gonna run from him. It's a fear that draws near to God in intimacy. Now, what does that mean? I want to show you a passage that shows this. This is so interesting. Remember Exodus 20, where God takes the people of Israel to Mount Sinai and then gives them the law, and God descends in fire on the mountain, and it's terrifying. It's awesome. And then Moses says something that's really confusing. Do you ever wonder what this means? Do not fear. Don't fear, right? For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Yeah, what does it mean in the Hebrew? It's the same word for fear, okay? Same one, okay? That's not gonna get you out of this, right? So wait, the people are afraid because God has just come down and yet Moses says, don't be afraid because God is teaching you to fear him. So draw near to the mountain. What does that mean? It means there is a kind of fear of God that doesn't repel us from God and think, oh no, there's a fear that draws near and you see that throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 11, we learn that Jesus, the coming Messiah, his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. In fact, the Old Testament says that God's delight is in those who fear him. Psalm 130 says, with you there is forgiveness so you may be feared. And so there is a pleasure in God that's called fear. This is very important for us to understand. I like the way Michael Reeves says it because he says, often we think the fear of God is kind of the theological equivalent of eating your vegetables, right? 
It's like, yeah, we love God and God's wonderful, but keep fearing him, right? You gotta fear him over here too. Now it's true. If you disobey God, God is a judge, but there's a fear of God that is in our obedience to him. What is that? What is being talked about? It's, it's, it's this right here. Here's the fear of the Lord. It's our trembling, awestruck enjoyment of his infinite excellence. Trembling is the term that scripture often uses. You know, you can find something terrifying and excellent at the same time, right? A giant wave, the Grand Canyon. I don't wanna fall into it, but I wanna get really close and look at it, right? And I'm I'm drawn to it. There is something about glory and the weight of glory that causes us to tremble, to feel our inferiority and to feel awe, right? We do this with landscapes and nature. We do it with people too. You're around certain people and they are just so glorious to you that you just feel small and yet you're drawn to them, right? I played against guys in athletics and I'm like, I will never be as good as you if I had a thousand years to train. I am amazed at how good you are, but I'm drawn, right? You think about why do people go have an identity crisis when they go to college? Because they were the smartest kid in their town and they just went to where all the other smart kids are. And they're like, I'm not smart, I'm stupid, right? It's the glory of all of these brilliant people who make you just feel so dumb. It's why, you know, people moved to New York City to be in the arts, right? And they were the best opera singer in their little town in middle of nowheresville. And they come to New York and they're like, I can't make any show, I, right? What are you feeling there? It's the weight of glory. It's excellence and you just feel small, Right? It's why we're terrified. If someone's beautiful, why you're terrified to talk to them, right? I really want you to like me, but I don't want to screw this up, right? That's why I put off talking to Cashel. I was just terrified. (laughs) And you have probably been around people who you regard and you don't want to disappoint and their notice of you, their honor would mean something. Now think about the excellence and beauty of God, his moral perfection, his holiness, his omnipotence. We fear him not because he's some crazy, capricious, fly off the handle God, but because he's so infinitely weighty and excellent. And it causes us to tremble in inferiority. Not because he's so bad, but because he's so good. Now, When that kind of God shows an interest in you, it should cause you to tremble. Because why on earth would you take an interest in me? See, the love of God isn't great to us till we understand the greatness and holiness of God. Right? Like, some of you have a dog. Your dog loves you, whatever. It's a dog, right? I'm sorry, my dog's wonderful. Yeah, but it's a dog. You feed it, you care for it. It's a great, loyal dog. That's not amazing. What's amazing is when like Cashel Klopfenstein says, I like you too. And you're like, I think I'm out of her leg. I think I'm gonna try this. And oh my gosh, she likes me. That's amazing. Now multiply that times infinity. And there's God infinitely majestic over you, morally perfect, who sees your flaws better than you will ever see them, your sin, your shortcoming, your lack of value in relation to him. And he takes an interest in you. And that's why in Jeremiah 32, when God says, when I do good to my people, that goodness will cause them to tremble and fear 
me. That's the fear of God that draws near because we tremble at his excellence. And until you account for the greatness of God, you won't be astounded by the goodness of God toward you. Does that make sense? That's what it means to fear God. And that kind of fear, when this God is committed to me and my good and I'm secure in Christ and I fear him, that drives out every other fear. Ultimately, that's what liberated me from my fear of people. It wasn't saying, oh, people are so small. It's just saying, look at the greatness of God. Whose opinion should I care about? Whose regard do I care about? Who do I care about pleasing? The one whose opinion matters most loves me the best. I'll fear him. I'll care more about taking him seriously and having his regard than anyone in the universe. And then I'll sleep easy at night. I don't care what other people think if I'm pleasing God. That's what finally liberated me from that. See, and and that's the gospel. The, The gospel is not... Boy, what God's love shows is that we're incredible. And God's just crazy about us. No. The gospel is, oh my, how could you love me? God, you've created us a little lower than the angels. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you would regard him, that the the infinite creator of the universe who does not need you, does not need you to be happy, does not need you to be full or sufficient, would give you his son and make you by grace, give you the standing that his son has had eternally, a son or daughter in the family. And say, I want you in my family. When you see that greatness and goodness, then you will fear God rightly. You will draw near to God and you will not care about pleasing other people. You will only care about pleasing God. And ultimately, you'll see that no matter how terrifying the world is, there is nothing more terrifying than the God who created it. And that God is already on your side. That's the gospel. That's the good news of the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, you say that your delight is in those who fear you. And uh, God, I pray that you would teach us to fear you and see the good news that delighting in your excellency and your perfection is what drives out every other fear. God, I know there are terrifying things in the world. There are terrifying things in every person here in their life. Um, God, would you give them a peace that surpasses understanding and ultimately that's founded on their knowledge of you. That God, uh, our lives are filled with problems that we cannot solve and questions that we cannot answer and yet we belong to you. And and help us to just trust that you are gonna fight the battle. You are gonna make our way straight and help us to wait and pray and stay close to you, trusting that you will make all things right. Jesus, thank you that you promise to quiet every fear. Jesus, help us to trust you more today in your name.